Views expressed are not endorsed by the United States Department of Defense or its components. Alrighty, welcome back to the Flyover Podcast as part of USAFA Aviation, Episode 3. I'm your host, John Costello, and with me are my co-host, Ezra Barnson. And today we have the pleasure of having Colonel Beth uh, Twister-Macros on the show with us today. Welcome to the show, ma'am. Hey, thanks, guys. I'm really excited to be here. It is not every day that I get invited to talk with cadets about flying. Um, I would have thought that we would talk about it more, but I'm really excited to have this opportunity to talk about um, bombers and long-range strike and just my experiences. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Could you just give us a quick bit of your background? You bet. I'm glad to. So I grew up as a military brat. So um, my dad was a test pilot, um, mostly in fighter aircraft. And so I grew up at Edwards Air Force Base. We had a time in Ramstein and London and all kinds of awesome opportunities. And so when it came time to choose where to go to school, I picked his alma mater because it seemed like a good place to go. So I came to the academy. uh, And I know we'll get into a little bit of conversation about why would you go to the Air Force Academy? But it wasn't only to fly. It was just really because it seemed like a great opportunity. Um, And then I came here, graduated in 1998, and I was one of the cadets that went to do graduate school. So I was selected to go to the Kennedy School, and I did two years of graduate school, then went to pilot training. I got married in there, and my husband was flying F-15s. He is also a classmate of mine. He flew Strike Eagles, and uh, so when we were trying to get stationed together, um, the easiest way for me to get to Mountain Home at the time, the year was 2000, was for me to go B-1s to Mountain Home. So I chose a bomber to go to Mountain Home Air Force Base. And then, unfortunately, September 11th happened, and and the world sort of changed. Our our force changed, how we were going to base, how we were going to do go to war. That changed for us. And so, unfortunately, that separated the B-1 out of Mountain Home Air Force Base. And so we ended up, after several deployments and doing our first operational tour, we then went to Enid to be um, instructors at Vance Air Force Base, which was a great opportunity. We did T-38s there. Uh, and then following that, um, we decided to go to the B-2 because that's how we could get stationed together as a joint spouse. And we stayed in the B-2 community for the rest of our flying career. We did squadron command there. And then eventually um, we went on to do staff jobs. And um, he was vice wing commander out of Barksdale. I was the 608th Air Operations Center commander. And then we came here to Colorado Springs. And since then, I um, was selected for permanent professor for um, CW. So now I'm here for probably a little bit longer, um, doing things like organizing collexes and morning PT, but also M5 and teaching in the MSS department. Awesome. So obviously, you talked a little bit about your father went to USAFA. Um, and you ended up coming here. And so why why do that? What, what specific yeah. reasons? And you said you ne- not necessarily to fly. What were those other reasons? And did you know you always wanted to fly? Or how did you sort that out? So I grew up on airfields, right? And not just on airfields, but at Edwards Air Force Base on airfields, right? So um, someone recent asked, recently asked me the question, like, have you ever met Chuck Yeager? And I was like, all the time. Chuck Yeager was like all, always around at air shows, right? Edwards Air Force Base. I remember making churros and selling them and Chuck Yeager standing next to me talking to my dad and my mom and like, that's pretty cool. You know what I mean? So um, being around airplanes wasn't like new or different to me. I'd always grown up around them. I just didn't ever think about flying them. I have two older brothers and they both were very interested in flying. But here's the moment that I really got me interested is I remember pointing to my dad's, we flew F-4s, remember pointing to my dad's aircraft and saying like, oh, I could probably fly that, right? I was eight years old. And one of his students in test flight of the school said, oh, no, girls don't do that. 
girls fly those planes. And he pointed to a KC-135. And I remember thinking to myself, that was the dumbest thing I have ever heard. Like, why would I be allowed to fly that and not that aircraft? And so from that moment on, it's sort of um, a theme for me, which is if you say mm, you can't do that, that's the thing you're always interested in, right? I think that's that's fairly common for children. Um, and so that got me sort of interested, like, well, if I'm going to fly, I mean, if I'm going to go, I'm going to fly. Um, then, you know, a couple years later, as I'm in grad or in high school, my um, good friend, he was going to Annapolis. And I remember thinking, like, if you can go to Annapolis, I could go to the Air Force Academy. And so that was it, right? I didn't really have any other place I desperately wanted to go, and it seemed like a good thing. So then I got here. And I wasn't initially pilot qualified because at the time, 5'4 is the, you have to be, that's the min, min height. And I am like 5'3 and 5'8s, right, just below. As far as the Air Force is concerned, by the way, I'm totally 5'4. 64 inches solidly. But at that measurement, I maybe wasn't quite there. So I just didn't think it was possible for me. And so, you know, I, I, I still did gliders. I did jump. I did the T3 program at the time. And I was like, you know what? This could be really fun. And so I stretched at night. I would, like, hang upside down in my gravity boots. The day that I got measured for my pilot physical, I remember, like, laying for 12 hours. And then I walked so softly down to the clinic. And I was like, measure me right away. Measure me. I probably borrowed some people's um, sliding pants from the baseball team, so my sitting height was still good. And they were like, you're 64 inches, you're pilot qualified. So I was like, I'm going to go do this. Um, and, and then from there on, you know, flying planes is fun when you're good at it, but it's not fun when you're not good at it. And, and I, I always try and emphasize that to people because you might not be good at it at first, and so it won't be fun. But then when you get good at it, it's a lot of fun. Um, and that's what I learned. And once I started to fly and started to get better at it, then I really fell in love with it. And so like, that's why I stayed with it. But, um, yeah, I didn't come to the academy because I was, like, dreaming. Of, like, I didn't look up at the skies and dream of soaring like an eagle. I was more like, I bet I could do that. I, I bet I could fly. I bet I could do X, Y, and Z. So that's what brought me to the academy, more of a challenge than a, a desire. That's, that's awesome. So when I was reading up for this podcast, um, I read, I think it was in, somewhere on the Air Force. Actually, no, I know specifically where it was. It was um, the list of females, the first females to fly the B-2. So you are number five right. uh, on that list. And um, it went into depth on how, um, I believe it was you were taking one of your kids, uh, your daughter, yeah. into the squadron constantly and being like, you know, you, you can do this too. Like, yeah. this is not a, a male sector. Like, females can do this too. Yes. And so can you talk a little bit not only – being the fifth woman ever to fly the B-2, but also like bringing your daughter in to the squadron. Yeah, thanks for asking that question because this one often gets overlooked. We think like in 2023, for example. So do you know how many pe women have flown, like been qualified to fly the B-2 ever? 10. Yeah, well, we're at like 11 now. Oh. So we were at, at five in 2006 when I was qualified in the B-2. And we've only added six since then. Like it just... It, seems so strange to me we we struggle sometimes with getting women into aviation and I don't ever want that to be my kids like I don't want them to think that that's hard or different or difficult um because there's no reason like you and I if I pull the stick back it responds the same way to me as it does to you it doesn't matter who's flying it but sometimes there's this feeling of I don't know if I could do it and so for me um I was the only female in the b2 for a really long time just because the four women before me had PCS'd away and left the community, so I was the only one. And then when I went back to be a commander, I was definitely the only one. And my DO in that unit, who was black, he was the only black B-2 pilot. And so we used to joke, like, we're it. We are the, all the diversity there is in the B-2. Um, and I wanted my kids to see that as much as they could, right? I wanted them to see how normal it is. And I'll be honest with you, it's not just about flying, but it's also about my mom is in charge. My mom is the boss. And, and I want them to see that. That's fine. You could be the boss, or you could work for somebody else. It 
you can be in either position. And we don't sometimes let women see that, particularly young girls, that you can do that. And I, I'm happy to say I have a 16-year-old who's very interested in coming to the academy and flying planes. And um, I like to think it's because, you know, she saw that. She walked around the, the squadron with me or she, you know, stepped out to the jet or went out on the flight line with me or whatever. Um, I'm sure her dad had some influence, but anyways. That's awesome. When you were growing up at uh, Edwards Air Force Base and you were on the flight line with your dad, did you? Uh, what was your favorite plane to see growing up? That's so, um, I don't know that I had a favorite one, but I, I like fast planes, right? Fast, loud planes. Um, li when I'm littler, I think I would have, I liked fighter planes more. Maybe that's just because what I saw more. But now I really like big planes. Like big planes are fascinating to me. If you ever watch like a C-5, it almost looks like it kind of hovers in the air. Just the idea of lift on that kind of a, uh, a platform is always amazing to me. Um, but yeah, I definitely like it still to this day, right? The F-22 demo, like that was amazing. It was so cool. Or but the, the helicopters, right? The rotary aircraft that just landed on the Trotso today. It's, I think probably anything. Anything that flies, honestly, any like machinery is just awesome. We were joking, like if you drove a tank onto the Trotso, I'd be excited. I think you guys would be too. Like we just like things. We like to see the toys. Yeah, for sure. So since a little bit transitioning more to your flying career, since the B-2 is just such an expensive plane to yes. fly, um, like how often as a pilot do you actually get to fly? And w what do those flight hours look like? Yeah, that's a, that's a real challenge for us. In any of our sort of like um, low density, high demand kind of aircraft or those that are very expensive. So a B-2 costs a lot of money per flying hour, hundreds of thousands of dollars for one hour to fly it, right? And so um, we have to balance that. But on average, we try and get every B-2 pilot two sorties a month. And then at Whiteman, we have also the companion trainer, which is the T-38A model. So you can fly that as much as you want. Honestly, like if you were like, I'm going to take this aircraft, I want to go on an out and back to Lincoln and, you know, land in Topeka and then come back. Like you could do that all day. Weekends, you could take the jet. It's pretty awesome that we have that opportunity in the B-2 community. So you're supposed to fly two B-2s, do two simulators. Simulators are really important for us since we don't get as much contact time on the jet. And then six T-38s. So it, that, that keeps you pretty busy in a month. But it certainly isn't the contact time like you would get in our other aircraft. Um, with that, that's tough. And so since you only fly roughly two times a month normally, what does the rest of the month as like being a pilot, B-2 pilot look yeah. like? Well, um, so the B-2 community is very small. So it's really important to remember that you're talking about like um, small, small, small numbers. So in a, a bomb squadron, you might have somewhere between 20 to 30 people total. And for that, you have to do all the things, all the scheduling, all the sorties, all the training, all the weapons and tactics, just all the things you do in a regular squadron we're doing. And you're talking about much smaller numbers of people to do it. Um, and so you're probably doing your other jobs, right? So like I was a training officer for a while. So I'm making sure that everybody's training is up to date, that they have all the things they need required for the year, all their required activities, this many night sorties, this many night landings, this AR or whatever. Um, I was also an evaluator, so I often had to go into the simulator and give emergency procedure checks, right? No notice or um, whatnot. Uh, and, and again, the two sorties, that's normal for sort of like the aircraft commander. Um, once you become an instructor, you're probably flying more like two, three, four times a month. Um, as an evaluator, you're probably flying three, four times a month just because there's just not a lot of people at that experience level. So, um, yeah, so you're doing that. Again, you might be flying a T-38. Um, don't forget to the, the B-2 and the B-52 have the nuclear mission. So in order to do that every month, you have to qualify 
on command and control procedures for nuclear weapons, and that is very strict. That is, you are either an A or you are an F. So you get these very detailed, difficult tests that last two to four hours, and you and your crewmate, because in the B-2 are just two of us, you've got to go through this scenario and decode certain messages and then come to certain conclusions about what's correct to do by the rules, uh, and then you're tested on it, right? So you can imagine the intensity of that testing. Our missileers do it every month, our nuclear bomber people. So we have to stay current in the nuclear enterprise, too. So that's studying. So i got to follow up on the, the testing side of testing front of things. So I believe it was about 10 years ago, there was a scandal in the Musilier front on the cheating. Has that ever happened to the B2? Have you ever seen people feel pressured to just based on the high standards? No, I, I would say uh, I'm very proud of the way the B2 community handles nuclear command and control procedures in that um, uh, I, cheating wouldn't like we wouldn't do we wouldn't cheat um, because it'd be well within our purview of um, performing and we we took it to mean, I don't know if you know, but in 2008, there was an incident where a nuclear weapon was flown across the country, right? So from Minot to Barksdale Air Force Base. And that is the impetus for why Global Strike Command stood up. And one of the things that we decided as a community, as an Air Force and as a bomber community, is that we need to make sure we take evaluations and training separately. So when it's time for an inspection, it's time for an inspection. But when it's time to do training and do those checks, those tests, we need to have a little bit of purview to ensure that when people make mistakes, that we correct the mistakes, that we ensure that they know what to do correctly, so that when the inspection comes, the real test, they're ready to go. And I'm, I'm really proud of how serious we took it, um, how well we did, how professional we were as a force. I was always impressed by that, um, but I certainly never felt any need to cheat. I don't even, like, I, I'll be honest, with you, I don't know how you would cheat, because the people giving us the test were a very small group um, Actually, missileers. So missileers come; they serve as your command and control sort of party. So no, I, I never felt that pressure because then I would not be able to do my job right. I, I think that that's you know again one of those things we struggle with when we think talk about the honor code and all those things, right? Like in the Air Force, I don't want to cheat because I don't want to not be good at my job. I just it, when you have an overly punitive um, system, that's where you get you know where you might be willing to push your integrity a little. So you mentioned that you use the T-38s for training. How applicable is that to when you actually hop in the real B-2 plane? And, <laughs> yeah. like, what's the transition, like, between that on such a regular basis? Yeah, that's a, that's a good, like, is the, is the T-38 the right companion trainer? When in a B-2, you're not going to be, you know, pulling Gs, doing loops, doing formation and those things. But so that's a fair point, right? But what I would say to that is flying is flying. Airmanship is airmanship. Whether I'm flying a T-53, whether I'm flying a B-2, like there's just core things about, right? Situational awareness, um, crew resource management, those kind of things. Are, and, and it is fun to pull Gs and go into the MOA and do some loops or whatever the case may be. Um, I'll just say, like, as I got older, I wanted to do that less and less, and I wanted to just fly around. Like, we really love to just go out and back and go somewhere and, you know, maybe have lunch and hang out as a unit. Like we'd take four aircraft and go land at Lincoln, go have lunch, hang out together, come back, maybe fly a little formation and then just land. It was more about doing stuff together, I think. Uh, and then just the fundamentals of flying. What does that uh, relationship look like with the other person who's in the cockpit with you while you're flying? Yeah, um, so we, one of the things we used to do in the B2 community, in the U2 community, 
also does something similar is we would interview people to join the community because you were just trying to look at are you going to be a good personality match for us because if I'm going to spend 24 36 up to 44 hours in this aircraft with you in some intensity like I want to make sure we can all get along um and I I think as professionals you can always find a way but yeah there were some people that were could be really annoying like after a couple hours you know what I'm saying like you had to look at that when I, when I was a commander and I'd put crews together. I was constantly thinking about like, is this the right dynamic? One with experience and inexperience, also with personalities. Like you had a couple strong personalities and you wanted to keep that. Um, but the B two does a good job of making sure like the left seat, which is the mission commander and the aircraft commander, have two very different roles. And so you you know it's kind of some standards on how you manage those roles. But um, yeah. That, that can be tough. That's so, always tough with the crew. So circling back to the nuclear mission of the B-2, if whether it was a training mission or if you were tasked to go drop a nuclear bomb, wherever it may be, how does the command and control aspect of actually taking the nuclear bomb, loading it into the plane, who's in command, and how does that checklist work? Because like, obviously like the missile leaders have a very rigid yes. um, thing. So how does that look in the B-2? It's the same kind of thing. It's just as rigid for nuclear activities on a bomber as it is a missile ear, uh, for missiles. Just keep in mind, too, the, the missiles, um, they do it every, every day. There's there's no down day for missile ears, right? So it's a different mission set because they have to be ready at every moment. It's just amazing to me. Like, it's Christmas. It's 2 a.m. on Christmas morning. They're ready. It's, you know, June 7th. They're ready. Like, it, it doesn't matter. Bombers are a little bit different. So we keep our weapons in storage facilities, and then we fly the aircraft normally, right? And we might practice a nuclear mission, or we might practice a conventional mission, but it doesn't mean there's weapons on the aircraft. So we have the you know, ability in the aircraft to simulate certain things and then execute a mission, if you will, simulating weapons. Um, and so, but when we're really loading weapons, the same thing. If you want to move weapons from point A to B, there is a very distinct checklist, security that's required, um, loading up weapons, being around weapons. So there's this thing called the two-person concept, which has always sort of been interesting to me like if if you want to get near that jet right and there are there are security forces every eight feet around the aircraft right and there's a red line and you will not cross that red line and um you know there are stories where people have accidentally like not paid attention and put their foot on the red line and i will just tell you that they're they have been eaten pavement within you know seconds even if they're like everyone knows like that's the air crew it doesn't matter like the rules are so strict and so specific because there can be never any accidents with the nuclear again you're an a plus or you're an f that's how it works in the nuclear enterprise um and then sort of the things you can do on the aircraft when the weapons are on it i mean you know they're they're, they're pretty strict with us and even when we're simulating we simulate some of the strictness of that but we don't taxi the aircraft with nuclear weapons on it we certainly would never take off with nuclear weapons unless we were directed to and there's only you know very few people that can direct that um, certain things and we know exactly this kind of message is authorized by this person and I've also worked at Stratcom so I understand sort of the back end of how that happens right but only the POTUS can authorize certain things the SecDef can approve certain things and the Stratcom commander can approve and that's it it can never be delegated down from there so it's it's it's, it's really strict um, it probably could use an evolution or two but we're, we're using 1950s, 60s technology, but that's the way it works. Um, so so to, to follow up yeah. just on the command and control aspect of those nuclear warheads. Okay. So 
say you're tasked, whether it's going to be you're dropping a bomb okay. or you're just transporting it for some reason. Um, we would never transport a weapon. This is an interesting point for you. We would never on a bomber aircraft. Um, we have a special unit of mobility aircraft that do that. There's a special group within AMC that that, that is their tasking. And if we need to move a weapon, they do that. And then there's a special group that does it via the ground mechanism, and they are highly trained and capable of doing that. But we would never move a weapon on a bomber. Okay, so you're tasked to drop yeah, the nuclear weapon. But if I was going to drop okay. it, then I would do it. Okay, yeah. so two pilots, normal people, okay. decide they go rogue. Oh, okay. And they have a nuclear warhead in a B-2. Okay. They decide they go rogue. What happens? Is What procedures are in place other than just shooting them down, if any, mm-hmm. are there to stop what, wherever they're going to go. So one, there has to be the two people. So you'd have to convince the other person, like we want to go rogue together, which that would be fascinating, right? Like, d- again, we're so disciplined and trained into this. And we have these conversations, like, again, we have to verify on this weapons tasking constantly. And so we are, you know, constantly asking question, questions from our wing commander, our group commander, our squadron commanders about like, are you still willing to do this? Is this still something that you would be willing to do? Um, <clears throat> so we think about it a lot. It's not like we just... So one, if you could convince the other person to do that, that would be fascinating. The second thing is there's certain codes set up and the time in which those codes are given to you, that's what allows us to unlock the weapon. So just because you have the weapon doesn't mean you can use the weapon. So I have to have a certain sequence occur and before I can unlock the weapon. But yeah, then I guess, I guess, if we got to there, I had convinced my crewmate and we had unlocked the weapon and I wanted to turn away from the target, right? Um, yeah, I guess you could, like, you could potentially drop it. I just, uh, there's so many safety mechanisms in there. That's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it really is. We don't play around with the nukes. We do not. Like, it, I can't even emphasize that enough. It's such serious business. You don't joke about it. We don't anything. Again, like I said, if somebody accidentally just touches that red line, that's a huge security violation. So, and that goes, that gets reported right up through the White House. Um, so that can be a big deal. So we take that super seriously. And you touched on it for a second, but what's the emotional preparation like going, like, you know, thinking about delivering such a devastating amount of power? Yeah. Um, that's a tough one, right? I mean, and obviously, I've never been in that position. Um, we think about it, we talk through it. Like, again, you do this when you go to philosophy class, right? Like, we need to think about these very challenging discussions way before we even get into the situation where you might use them. So you can logically think through what would be my issues, what would be my concerns. Does that make sense? So we spend a lot of time uh, on that. I, I think the same thing is true for just dropping any kind of kinetic weapon, or I would imagine using a non-kinetic weapon, but something that can impart damage in some way, right? You want to think that that you understand the system enough to understand the effect you're trying to drive to achieve an objective that is legal and ethical under the laws of war, right? Um, and so I've spent a lot of time, you know, looking at target sets as an Air Operations Center commander or uh, as a planner at Stratcom. We spend a lot of time in the United States making sure that that is absolutely the correct target, that we're using the right kind of weapon in the right way at the right time to drive the effect. And again, the law of proportionality would tell you, you don't use more than what you must do. You only use what you must do. And in the U.S., that's a huge sort of impetus for planners. We don't 
over bomb something or over target something or we try not to do that unless we think we must do that to achieve an objective yeah so we talked a little bit about um the two times a month to go fly but when you're actually in those training missions what do they look like and the time duration what exactly are you doing where are you going so i would say most of the time you're going to take off and land at whiteman there's a couple times where we'll take off and land from nellis if we're part of like an, a large force exercise weapons school support that kind of stuff but most of the time is taking off and landing at whiteman air force base um and, and that's what we always plan to do we even plan to take off and, and then go drop weapons halfway around the world and return to Whiteman Air Force Base. So we're coming and going from CONUS. That's really important to keep in mind for Global Strike because that's important um, if I don't have to launch from another country because I don't have to get their approval to do that. So that's just something to keep in mind as you guys think about future fight stuff. Having a coalition partners, that can sometimes limit you to what you can do. So we think about Global Strike in that way. So the average sortie, let's say it's four to six hours. That's about right. So we usually will take off, we'll hit a tanker somewhere in there, and we tend to um, have a tanker on most of our sorties. And we might need gas or we might not need gas. It's just for us to practice because I'll tell you, at about hour, you know, 16, 20, 24, it's, you're not as good as you think you are. Like in some ways you're technically legally drunk. And so your, your dexterity, your visual cues kind of slow down. And so we want to see the tanker so many times that it's pretty easy with foreign weather or we're tired or whatever that we can, we can hit the tanker. So usually we hit a tanker um, and then we'll go off either to, if we have weapons on the jet, we'll go to a range, drop the weapons. Um, if we don't, we'll go simulate a weapons drop. And we have like menus of sorties that we can go fly. So there's scenarios behind it. Um, there might be an electronic warfare scenario and a range that we can fly over and they can send up trons and we can look to see if our def defensive weapon systems are able to handle that. Um, and then, uh, you, you know, fly, maybe reattack or something like that. Uh, we'll run through all our comms. So the B2 has quite a significant comm suite that we have to be sure that we can execute it. You can imagine if we're doing global missions, we need to be globally connected. Um, if we're doing a nuclear mission, we might simulate that all the GPS is out, right? So all the, we'll, we'll take out our GPS, we'll turn off our GPS, we'll wreck our nav navigations, and then we'll try and recover our navs, right? So taking radar shots, stuff like that. So we're, we're just practicing for all kinds of different scenarios and then come back and maybe do a couple patterns and landings. To be fair, that's what beats up the jet the worst, right? Patterns and landings, particularly for stealth aircraft. So we like to limit those as much as we can. The B-2 is the opposite of what you're used to landing. So usually you come in and then you flare off the aircraft and land. A flying wing has significant ground um, uh, ground effect, right? Again, a, a, a B-2 is 172 feet wide. So it's the same width as a B-52. That's only 69 feet long. So the same length as an F-15. So it's really... So once it gets into ground effect, it just floats forever and ever. And it'll kind of float... And then it, it could stall. And so what you actually is you come in, you land, you pull the power, and then you just kind of push the nose down, just get it to pop through that ground effect and land. Um, and I'd say that's the average sortie. So air refuel, practice bomb runs, probably a degraded nav or something like that. Run through your comm systems um, and then practice a, a pattern in the landing. When you talk about, you know, 20-plus hour missions, yeah. I'm honestly not sure. Do you guys utilize go pills? We do, absolutely. Um, and, and we have a flight physiologist that works with us. So before we're allowed to do a long-duration sortie, we have to do long-duration sims. We have to ground test a series of meds and stuff so that we know what to do. And then a flight physiologist sits with us and talks about 
the sortie. So when are the sort of the points where we need to be the most on and when can we sleep and stuff like that. And they talk about when we're going to sleep, when we're going to eat, what we're going to eat, and when to take a pill, um, that kind of stuff. They really sit down and, and are, they're very thoughtful about that, which again, I think is amazing because I flew B1s before that and I flew a long duration sortie and they were just like, go get them, tiger. And I was, I was confused. I was putting in numbers backwards. My air refueling was horrible and I remember being like wow I'm that tired and that was only 16 hours but in the B2 again we practice we do quite a few long durations every year we try and fly at least a 24 hour sortie for those out there who don't know can you go a little bit into depth what exactly go pills are oh you bet well there's a couple go pills that we use but um, amphetamines is one right um so um dex um, and that's the one that really, like, again, you'll 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 feel it, right? That's an amphetamine. Um, and then there's some that we use. Um, Modafinil was one, and that again, just to help you keep stay awake. And that's used by narcoleptics, and that just helps to give you a little lift. You could also use caffeine. I know a lot of people that don't do any of that stuff. They just use caffeine and protein for certain periods of time. And 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 we're allowed to again, if you're not doing air refueling, weapons takeoffs and landings, any critical phase of flight, <clears throat> then we're usually back, one of the air crew is back sleeping in sort of like in the little bitty area. The B2 is a really small cockpit, but it does have a little area that you can set up a cot or a chair or something like that. So how does the it feel to fly the B2 in foreign airspace and have no one know that you're there and just be able to do whatever you want? Like, um, So... When we are practicing, um, we don't want to do that, right? What we want to do is um, be very um, uh, dirty on the aircraft, right? We want the aircraft to be very dirty, and we want to not look as stealthy as we possibly can. But if you do have to pen up, penetrate up, so pen up, um, you know, be as stealthy as you can, then you want to move as little as you can, right? So we're definitely not going to talk on any radios. We're not going to emit anything, we're going to turn as little as we can, right? In fact, the, air the aircraft doesn't turn like that. What it does is these engines um, spool back and these engines spool up and we just yaw ourselves. We just turn ourselves this way. So it's very slow. Um, and, and that's what we do. We're not talking to anybody and just thinking skinny. That's it. That's crazy. And so have you ever in your career, if you're allowed to say, have you ever had to partake in any of those missions? No. In fact, it, that's a really bad day when the B-2 is used, right? Like um, the B-1, the B-52 are are used a lot, as they should be. And they're used for show of force missions. They're used for weapons drops when necessary. But we fly those things for a bomber task force almost weekly now into the South China Sea, into the Straits, into the Black Sea, up into the Arctic Circle. Like you want them to be loud and showy, Right. You don't want to do that with your B-2s. You want to keep your B-2s because once you've given up the sort of radar cross-section capability and they get a couple hits on you, that it just deteriorates the capability. And that's why the B-2 needs to retire, right? Like, make the, no doubt about it. The B-2 absolutely needs to retire so that the B-21 can come in and fill that because we have reached the limit of that technology and now we need to move on. Um, yeah, but, but no, the B-2 has been used very rarely um, for good reasons. There's certain mission sets that the B-2 can do, um, hard target defeat, et cetera, that you would want to use the B-2 for. But other than that, we, we, we are in a bad place when we're using the B-2 for something. It's a deterrence thing to be saved for, for real use. Could you go a little bit into the approval authority of getting those strategic bombers going to the South China Sea yeah. or other parts of the world outside of the United States? Anytime we move a bomber outside of the United States, anytime, 
and I did this because I was, again, in the 608 AOC, which is a um, is the command and control node for our strategic forces. Um, it's the SECDEF that has to approve that. So it's not just like, hey, you wanted to take that B-52 and we wanted to go to Australia. Like, no, sir. Not a B-1, not a B-2, and not a B-52. So every time we want to move those, we have to get authority from the SECDEF to move those guys. So that's really important for us. Um, the second thing is to... You can't just land an aircraft somewhere. And sometimes, um, believe it or not, some countries aren't keen on receiving U.S. bombers. That that There's political issues, right? Sometimes with Spain. That's a big one we have to get. They don't want to overfly. Um, we, they don't want us to overfly their airspace. Um, bombers just mean differently, right? Those are like your rooks and your knights, right? Not to say that fighters are like your pawns, but fighters can move around a lot easier. But strategic bombers, particularly nuclear-capable bombers, it's a little bit different. So that can be really difficult. And how often does that happen where the SECDEF has to sign off? Well, right now he's signing off on um, Bomber Task Force almost like monthly to weekly. Um, and again, it's part of our deterrence mission to our, our, you know, primarily peer adversaries, Russia and China, but also to our other, you know, uh, areas of concern, you know, that, that we can get there at any time, anywhere, reach any of your targets. We still have this capability. And we can show up surprisingly. Like I can take off from Dias Air Force Base. We could take a B-1 from Dias Air Force Base, and they can go east, and they can go west, and they can go south. Like, you don't know. You don't know where they're coming. You don't know where they're going. You just don't know yet. And so when you're in the B-2, what's it like coordinating with all the other bombers and, like, all the other task force that are out there? Yeah, so the, um, that's mainly done by the air operations centers and then the wings, right? So when we're planning, like, hey, how are we going to handle this? We'll task this B-52 unit with this. We'll task this B-1 unit with this. So the deconfliction is really done uh, long before, and we give them the air tasking order, and then they execute that. Um, and then obviously in there, uh, the challenge is building the tanker bridge. So bombers have a long range, but they certainly are intercontinental without a tanker bridge. So that's the most important thing to us, like that good relationship that we have with our mobility and particularly our tanker um crews is, is invaluable. So if we're going to be late, if we're going to be early, if we're going to be whatever we're going to be, it's really important that we make sure we get that to the air operation centers and then the air operation centers take care of that. Um, that's the, the operational backbone for the Air Force to make sure that those things are deconflicted and coordinated. So if you could, what's a story or an example of the most physically and mentally grueling mission that you've ever flown? Oh. Question. Um, I'd say I, I, I took some jets. Uh, well, we took an aircraft um, back from, so we were in Guam. So for a really long time, we had bomber aircraft. I'm sorry, I'm making noise. Um, we had bomber aircraft on Guam. I think that was probably for 17 years. It was called the Continuous Bomber Presence. Guam Air Force Base, there was a set of bombers there continuously B 52s, B 1s, and B 2s. We sort of rotated around. And we were coming back. And unfortunately, there was a um, incident in the hangar, so we kept the B-2 in the hangar, that set off the fire suppression system, and so it covered the aircraft with this nasty foam. And so we had to get that kind of cleaned up. So um, I was the director of operations for the squadron at the time, and so we sent the other aircraft, and I remained with this very young co-pilot who was upgrading. He was upgrading to instructor pilot. And he was struggling a little bit. And on the way home, uh, when we finally were able to get the aircraft situated, and you know, we ended up staying uh, you know, hours and hours later than we thought, so we were a little bit tired, and we had some weapons, or not weapons, we had some weapon systems malfunctions, and then we had some tanker issues. So if we didn't get this one tanker, um, then we were going to have to divert to this 
fairly small island in the middle of the Pacific, which we would prefer not to go to, um, because it would be very difficult to launch from there. And um, when we hooked up to the tanker, he said, I have a boom malfunction, so if you guys disconnect, I can't give you gas. Like, so this is it. So I have this young, young, um, in the case here was an aircraft commander, but, uh, you know, I want to let him have us, but I can't risk this opportunity, right? So this is one of those where you think, okay, and we've already had all these things not work out so well. Uh, unfortunately, we got a disconnect. And so, you know, so we're like, oh, crap, and I don't want to go there. I want to go home. I, I have a six-month-old daughter at this point, and I want to go see her. And um, so I remember being like, just let me try. Just like one more time, let me try. As we're getting into weather, uh, the boom operator did let me try again. We were able to get a contact, get our gas and go back. But I remember at that time being like, oh, man, like this is so frustrating. And like, you, you just want to yell at people. You know what I mean? You just want to be like, here, I have it. But what would that teach that person if I just took the aircraft and did it? You know what I mean? Like, I, I still think to this day it wasn't his fault that there was a disconnect at all. We were in weather. But um, I still think that showed that, you know, I trust you and, and, and you can do it. So there's... All those kinds. When you're tired, you make some really bad choices, too. So, What was it like mentoring those young pilots as a squadron commander? So, and again, I had students because I was the FTU commander, so all the B-2. So I used to, like, joke, um, no matter what you are, like, you're going to end up as a B-2 pilot, like, for sure. It's the adjective that we put in front of that B-2 pilot that's up for grabs. Good, crappy, strong, weak, you know. Whatever the case, but I need you to be B2 pilot because I only put four through every class. So I only create 16 B2 pilots a year. So I need you to know, like, no matter what happens, I need to get you through, but you need to decide the adjective that goes before the B2 pilot. And I think that that's probably one of the, the best things. Like, that's up to you. I'm, you know, you're going to graduate from USAFA. You're going to be a lieutenant. The question becomes, do you want to be a good lieutenant? Do you want to be a dirtbag lieutenant? Like, what adjective do you want me to put in front of that lieutenant? So... Could you talk that you touched earlier? So joint spouse, um, your husband originally flew F-15s, transitioned over to the B-2, um, and you were flying B-2s at the same time. Yes. Um, so how did you handle being both being pilots in the Air Force? And what was it like knowing that you both went home and yeah. you're training to fly the nuclear B-2 bomber mission? Yeah, that's a good question. And we have three daughters, too. And so there's just this weird balance, right? Because, first of all, he's my peer in some ways. And we're peer squadron commanders, so there's a competition there, right? So there's this competitive thing. Also, that's your spouse, so that's your life partner and the, you know what I mean, the parent of your children. So there's it was a fascinating dynamic, but we could share information. And I think, like... In, in most organizations, when you have your peer and you have a trusting relationship where you can share information honestly, um, that always benefits an organization. So I could tell him honestly, like, hey, this is what's actually going on with this person that you've sent to me an instructor upgrade. And he could say, OK, honestly, I'm not surprised or, you know, we could we could share information in that way. Um, but, yeah, I think it's a good point. You know, we just we had fun, but we also struggled with that balance of like, work-life balance because as you mentioned I could bring that home like it, it sort of never died now my husband is a very unique person he he is a very laid-back he does not um, 
uh, work late hours like ever. Um, and so he would be like, I'm not talking about this. Like we're done. It's, you know, the evening. I'd be the more likely person to come home and bring work home. Um, yeah. So, but it gave me great perspective and I could see from the operational squadron, what they needed, what they wanted, what was helping them. And I could let him know sort of, this is what we're doing to prepare people to come to you. Um, cause you know, I'd send them the initial equality. He'd send me back people for instructor upgrade. I'd send them back IP. So this was sort of the cycle. And like, was there ever a struggle? Like both for some reason, like st- stuck at work because you have to deal with whatever that came up and you have three daughters. Yeah. All like, the wh- time. What, how do you handle that situation? Is there ever where it's like, hey, like, no, like, I got to put family first. Like, this is after hours right now. Yeah, I, that, that's a tough thing, right? Especially at that stage of your career because you're super excited about that, you know, your command and you're doing all these things. And and I should mention, you know, I was a squadron commander for a year and then while well, he was a DO and then he became a squadron commander. So we only commanded back to back for one year. But the year that he was the DO, he actually deployed. So I was by myself with three kids. And that was a way harder struggle because there were times where I'd be flying a sortie and I'd be like, "Uh uh-oh, someone would send me a message on our comm system saying like, hey, the CDC is calling and your daughter's sick. And you're like, oh, crud, like, what am I going to do? And in that case, I was lucky that I was part of the B2 community because they really are close-knit. And so I could, you know, say to somebody in the squadron, hey, can you go pick her up? Can your wife come help? Like, there was always somebody there to help out. So I was pretty blessed with that. And I had really great leadership. Not all of it was great, but I had really great leadership for the most part in the B2 community that was supportive of that, that understood that that's just, hey, families are important to us. And I'd say across the bomber community, I like to think that they have a better sense of family and taking care of families. Mm. So earlier you mentioned that the B2 is kind of coming to the end of its time. How do you see the B2 to B21 transition going? So um, it's already started, and it was really exciting. We went out to the unveiling, and it was it was amazing. And it was amazing for me to see. Um, we were talking to the uh, first person that will fly. His name is Cliff Bell, Dollar Bell. He is amazing. He was my student in pilot training. He subsequently became my student in B2s. He is one of the smartest people I know. And to know, like, he's going to go fly the – he'll fly the first ever B21, which fly this year. Um, then I was talking to the first – select cadre for the b21 and most of them actually i i know they were my students going through either iqt or ipug um and so they're all transitioning so it's already started so i think little by little they'll take select group from all three bombers it's really important in the bomber community that we represent all three bombers because we have different missions that the b21 will sort of do similarly um and so they'll start to move people over then start to you know we've already started to retire the first b1s um, then we'll bring the B-21 on, start to retire more B-1s, then we'll start to retire B-2s, and then we'll bring down the last B-1, then we'll bring down the last B-2, and then we'll be fully into B-21. So, yeah, that, the plan is to transition people from the airframes into the B-21. So is the B-52 staying around? Or? It is. Okay. So the B-52, do you know how long it'll stay around? It was Probably a long time. Yeah, tw- yeah, so you're talking about into the 2050s. That is wild. Yeah. Now, it will not look like the B-52 that you see today. The outside will look the same, right? The actual, but the guts will be much, much different. They're getting rid of uh, one of the positions, the EWO position. Um, it'll be a glass cockpit, brand new engines. Um, but to be fair, if you think about aircraft, so you need two kind of aircraft for strike. 
You need standoff and stand in. You need an aircraft that can come up and just deliver all kinds of weapons. And we have long range, what we call standoff weapons. Think JASM, think JASM ER, those kind of things, right? That's what B-52s and B-1s do beautifully. They come in, they can carry massive numbers of weapons, and then they can just launch them and then go. You need some kind of weapon system to penetrate in, particularly because our adversaries are not going to put their targets right on the coast. They're going to put them deep, and then they're going to put them deep in the ground. That's where they're going, right? Deep into the country, deep down. And so you need aircraft that can get there, and then you need weapons that can get down, if, if that makes sense. And so that's what the B-21, that's what the B-2 currently does, and that's what the B-21 will, will be able to do really well. So a lot of this is classified. Okay. And, I mean, we we have no idea. <laughs> but yeah. um, when we talk about the generational gap, you talked earlier, it's time for the B-2 to retire. Yeah. For probably a number of reasons. How much more capable is the B-21? I, I wish that we could expect, like, it's vastly more capable. It's, um, it's stealth capability, right? It's, pen, it's ability to penetrate will be significant, right? We're talking about going from, from LO aircraft to extremely low observable aircraft, so massively um, less uh, radar cross-section. Its ability to connect will be significantly different. And one of the great things, and, and this is, I think, um, there's a lot of best practices potentially in the acquisitions world, but the Rapid Capabilities Office did, and that Air Force Global Strike did right, open architecture, right? This, uh, this ability to say, hey, we'll field this aircraft. We know that we need to grow it, and we don't want just one company to be able to do it. We want anyone to be able to write software that potentially allows for growth in the B-21. Uh, there's a lot of growth capability in there, so it, it's it's pretty impressive from an acquisitions perspective and then impressive from a weapon system perspective. So if you were to compare the stealthiness okay. of the future B-21 okay. to currently the F-35. You can't really do it like that. Okay. Okay. And, and here's why. Because um, the two totally different aircraft for two totally different purposes, right? And so, but when you look at the shape of an aircraft, right, when you see a flying wing, that's 80% of its stealthiness like we and and we do that for very good reasons because you're looking for that spike management right so a b2 is gonna have a small circle a radar cross section but it's gonna have these long spikes because radar is gonna get reflected off that angle and so you'll often see like b2 people kind of like they'll show you like this and this will be 21 because these are the spikes and the spikes you're just looking so if you're an sa20 i'm just gonna swing my spike through you as long as i don't drive my spike at you then I'm good, right? You won't see me. But an F-22 or an F-35 is made differently, right? It's going to have a much smaller look at the front and a bigger look at the back radar cross-section. That's fine because it's hauling ass away from you. I won't be in a V-2, for example, moving as quickly away from you. And so you can't really compare because they're different if you look at the aspects. Um, but, yeah. And I certainly wouldn't tell you whether it's smaller or larger because... I'm not allowed to say that. <laughs> but it's really small. Really small. So what's your kind of view on the B2 production getting cut so short or, like, there being so few B2s? Yeah. you think we could use more? Or? Well, I think you could always, right? Like, there's a there was a study done, um, I think, by the Mitchell Institute a couple of years ago, and they were talking, like, what's the right number of bombers? And I think they came up with, like, 144. And it, it's some number, right? And, you know, we have 75 B-52s. We have 20 B-2s. And I forget what we have right now, 40-some, maybe 60 B-1s. That's about, like, the number. And so 
Yeah, could you have used more B-2s? You bet. It's tough to manage a 20-aircraft fleet. Small crew, or small fleet dynamics is what they say. That's really hard. That's hard on maintenance. That's hard on supply chains. That's hard on, you know, just flying out air crew, making sure you have enough air crew. Like we talked about, there's very few number of air crew that can be qualified. So there, there's all kinds of dynamics that get driven by that. So it's really important to the Air Force to keep that number of B-21s at at a certain number so that you can have multiple locations, right? Right now we just have Whiteman Air Force Base. We need multiple locations for the B-21. We need to see them at Ellsworth. We need to see them at Whiteman. And we need to see them at Dias. We need to have them at all those places. And there's good reasons, right? From a targeting perspective, I would worry. You don't want all your eggs in one basket. Um, I want to be able to do different things with different um, aircraft, right? I need to be able to go east and west, north and south. So those are some of the, the reasons why I want to keep that. Um, so, yeah, I think the Air Force would have benefited from more. Um, I don't think the targets or the the conflicts that we found ourselves needed more B-2s, but certainly it would have been easier to manage. There would have been different lessons learned, I think, had you had more Why B-2s. could they not just, like, split – roughly there's 20 right yeah. now. Why could they not split 10 and 10? Like, oh. what's, the, what's the logistical reason Yeah, if it's so strategically important? Yeah, um, and, and you can handle that. Let me answer, like, what, how I think you handle the risk sort of uh, mitigation is you just have the aircraft either get airborne or you disperse them, right? So think about the construct of ACE. That's kind of what we're doing. We're saying, like, hey, let's not have just one big base. Let's disperse around and make the adver- – like, complicate the adversary's um, targeting uh, so that's how I think you handle it as opposed to, but it's really hard for, so first of all, of those aircraft, you always have to have a certain number in depot maintenance. Remember every B2 is basically every 10 years is torn apart and rebuilt. And so you always have four of them in depot maintenance. So out of the 24 are in some pieces and parts in Palmdale. Um, and then you have some number that are in, uh, other maintenances, right, like HPO, et cetera. So the maintainers have a a very strict schedule of how they have to keep them. So they have those in depot. Some are in stealth maintenance. Some are just unflyable because they're broken for some reason, right? So they're in just regular, I would say regular maintenance. So stealth, sort of depot maintenance, and then you've got your just regular maintenance. So you have some number of aircraft that that are just flyable. We also try and keep some pretty clean and ready for certain adversaries. So it would be dumb if we had B-2s and the stealth wasn't very good on them. So you have to keep a couple of them really clean. You don't want to fly clean jets because that will make them dirty, right? And so you're balancing this really difficult. So if you can bring them all together, that allows our maintenance crew to sort of keep those so you have the most that you can fly. Yeah, so a fight with a near peer or peer adversary okay. breaks out today. Okay. Russia, China, name the country. Okay. How does the B2 get leveraged in the first week? And how does it get leveraged in the months to follow if it was an all-out conflict? Yeah, so what I would say is you're going to use the B-2 for the things that you need to use a B-2 for. Um, so, again, that's p- penetration and then hard target defeat. So uh, maybe it's taking down IADs, getting into the country, and then hard target defeat, meaning things that are usually like deeply buried. Um, and so those are some of the things you do. But there's another capability the B-2 has. So the B-2 is the only um, bomber that can carry 80 independently targeted JDAM. So it can carry 80 GBU-38s, um, which are 500-pound weapons. And so that you can target specifically, I mean, 80 is a ridiculous number. Like, I'll tell you a funny story. We were deployed once doing like an exercise with some F-22 guys. And they were like, well, you come be part of my, I think it was like an upgrade. Sure. In fact, he was my student in pilot training. So I said, sure. So we flew, and he said, hey, I need you to take out this, I can't remember, this target set. And I said, hey, no problem. 
what would you like me to do with the other 78 bombs that I'm carrying? Like, I have, I could take out that whole airfield, I could take out all those targets, then I could do this, this, and this, and this, and I could do that all in one pass, because I want to minimize the number of times I open and close my doors. Um, and so, when you're talking about 80 weapons, that's something else that you can consider, right? The B2 can do that. That's something else that the B2 can do. It does carry some specific weapons that we would use for specific target sets, so depending on the adversary, you, you would be using it for that target set. It's very specific. Um, yeah, that, those are the things that the B2 could do. So to follow up on that, you, you, you were talking, we want to limit how many times we op open our bomb doors. So how does the stealthiness of the aircraft get affected every single time you open it? Open it? Yeah. yeah, is it just like you Boom. open up and they can lock on or? Yes, and so we're looking for to minimize the amount of time that, so you're thinking about what's the threat to my aircraft and then what's the radar sort of capability for it to find, fix, and tr tar track, target me, all those kind of things, right? So I'm thinking about that too. Like if my weapons bays are open for five seconds, if they're open for 10 seconds, is that enough time for that weapon system to find me and then launch before I close that weapon? So, you know, we think about that too. And so say they get a lock on you. If you close the bomb doors, does that go away or potentially, can, potentially uh, not though? But cause again, like you're talking about if, if I, you can find me, then, then keeping me might not be as difficult, but if I'm small and I can hide in the noise, finding me is hard. But once you found me, maybe keeping the track won't be as hard. So you have to think about that too. And different weapon systems, different radars um, are better against the B2. The B2s, optimized against certain radars and it's not optimized against other radars so if these radars see us then i'm more nervous than if other ones do um, and and i'm not just thinking about the like the target tracker right i'm also thinking about the early warning radars that net me and then can pass that through their iads to other weapon systems so i might get out of range of you but the early warning radar sees me and he passes that to to this you know sam now i'm worried about that so i'm you know, I want to close and be careful and scooch, right? I'm going to close my weapons bay doors and probably maneuver out of, so I don't have spike management issues, but that makes sense. So what does the response time for the B-2 look like? War breaks out with China and like now, mm -hmm. how quickly can we get up in the air and, you know, move assets downrange? So um, we wouldn't move, that, that's an interesting question. We wouldn't move them downrange. Very likely, again, you'll wanna launch from Whiteman and return to Whiteman. You might launch from Whiteman, land somewhere, and then go back to Whiteman, but we wanna come back to Whiteman. The reasons are multifold, but one, LO maintenance is best done there. Um, loading weapons, that's the best place for us to load weapons because of the infrastructure that exists. Um, some of the other things that we have that's best done at Whiteman. Does that make sense? Yeah. So th that's a really good question. But as far as Whiteman's concerned, I mean, you could immediately say, hey, go in a crew rest and then stand up the mission planning cell and they could plan out a mission and then bring you back in 12 hours and potentially launch. Um, depends on how fast, you know, maintenance can load weapons onto the aircraft. Um, we did it as quickly as um, in January of 2020, we sent B-52s, uh, mind you, we got them to Diego Garcia within 48 hours of the SecDef saying, this is what I want, I want to see B-52s. We were like, no problem. Send those guys on crew rest, start loading up those jets with weapons. They were fully loaded with JASM, got the crews back in, had the tanker bridge built, and in 48 hours they had launched and they were heading into. So we can do that pretty darn quick. Is there any exception to crew rest? 
in emergency situations or of has that course. ever happened? Yeah, has, has that ever happened in the history of the bomber fleet yeah. or well, we when, when would you expect rest. that? Yeah, to the happen? wing commander can, ex- I, I, I want to say, and I, I don't quote me here, but I want to say like, it's like, hey, I can do 20 hours, right? The squadron commander can say, I, I extend your crew rest. And then the wing commander can extend it to 30 or something like that. So that's pretty normal. And they kind of talk through that. Um, as far as going like, hey, I'm going to send you home so you can rest, so you can come back in. Um, I think that's rare just because you'd need your MPC to stand up and plan out the mission and stuff like that. You'd have enough foresight to, to do that and load up weapons or whatever you needed to. But, I, I mean, within hours, hours to days, our bomber fleet, all the bomber fleet can do that. No problem. And so what is that night before your, your crew, you're getting your crew rest, getting some sleep. What does that like pre-planning look like before the day before the mission? So you're in crew rest and you're flying the mission. And this is really important in the, um, in global strike, um, that, you know, that he's doing, he's running the mission planning cell, right? He's a weapons officer and he's got a whole team of people in the basement of the OSS at Whiteman and they're planning the mission, getting your tanker set up, working with the air operations center and getting everything situated. And you're just supposed to be resting. That's hard, right? You're just like, I'm just sitting here. I'm going to trust that he knows exactly what to do. And then what happens is you come in, you check in, you go through life support, get all your gear, you go down into the basement, and then he briefs you up. He says, okay, here's the mission. And they walk you through it, and you ask questions, and you study it, and then you brief your crew, or you brief your flight, because it's most likely a formation. And then you talk about that, and then you you step through, step out to the jets. Most likely we have crews out at the jets. I've already started your jet, get it ready. You just walk up into the jet, get everything situated, and then you launch. And we do practice that. Every year we practice that with a large number of aircraft for a very specific adversary. Actually, we do it a couple times for different adversaries, and we practice that exact thing, how we're going to do it, how we're going to be, we're going to do OPSEC. We practice our OPSEC plan. We practice our tanker plan. We practice all that stuff. Every year we do it. Wow. Yeah, it is, impre- it is impressive to watch. Um, it is great exercise for the people running the MPC, for the people flying the swords. And just so you know, after you landed, the idea would be then you land, you go into crew rest, you come back, run the MPC while he's in crew rest so that he then does his sortie. Like, that's how it works. So I run the MPC while you're in crew rest. I brief you up. I go into crew rest. I come in to fly. You, they brief me, and it works like that. It's a waterfall. So the pilots are doing the planning for the other pilots. You bet. Awesome. The pilots are doing the planning for the other pilots. So comparing, obviously we got B-1, B-2, B-52 right now. Comparing our bomber fleet to adversaries yeah. who China's, the threat from China is growing very, very, very quickly. Do, does either China or, say, Russia have a bomber fleet that can rival us? No, or not how rival. close are they? Yeah, I, no way, no way, no way rival. Um, do they have a capable long-range strike capability? Yes. Does their bomber fleet match our bomber No way. Their tanker fleet doesn't match our tanker fleet. But um, if you think about the Russians, right, they do have the Bears, which are sort of like B-52 equivalents. And then they have the Blackjacks, which are like B-1 equivalents. And that's kind of where they've stopped with their long-range strike capability. They still fly them. Their numbers are nowhere near our numbers. Um, And, again, they don't have the tanker fleet that we have. So they couldn't come in volume the way we can come. Um, But, yeah, the thing that they have that I think is interesting or something to think about, it's their standoff weapons, They've modernized their weapons. So their cruise missiles have some pretty significant range. Both their conventional and their nuclear-capable cruise missiles are pretty capable. So from the Russian perspective, and they have medium-range bombers too. So Because if you think about the the, um, targets from a Russian perspective, it's Europe. 
So I don't need necessarily, because if I want to reach out and touch the U.S., I have ICBMs and I have SLBMs that I can do to touch the U.S. And I just have some bombers, but they haven't put their sort of their eggs in that basket as much as we have. The Chinese, um, again, certainly building capability, but they don't even have right now a sort of a, a strong refuelable bomber, right? The H-6 and that's what they're working towards. They will have standoff capability, and they will have a refuelable bomber that can eventually get there. But um, what they have is ballistic missiles. They are really good. Their their ballistic missiles are so. Their if you were long range strike force is much more focused on ballistic missiles. And how concerning is that? I believe they have hypersonics. Mm-hmm. Okay. How? Yes, they they, they claim to. They claim to have hypersonics, how, and how we don't know how that necessarily looks. And so do the Russians, by the way. How? How concerning is that to you as a B-2 pilot? Because, I mean, ultimately a hypersonic missile can get here a lot faster than a B-2 can get to them. Well, always remember, a hypersonic will not have the range of, like, a intercontinental ballistic. So you're talking in the thousands of miles, you know, a thousand miles, maybe 1,500 miles. A hypersonic is not like a ballistic missile. Uh, you know, again, an intercontinental was just 6,000-plus miles. And so they got to get there and then launch the weapon. So do I think that they're going to strike the U.S. with a hypersonic? Not quite yet. Do I think they can, you know, hit within the first and second island chain? Yes, probably. So I I think the question becomes, we're still bringing the fight to the Indo-Pacific region, right? I don't think the fight necessarily, unless they're going to use those long-range ballistic missiles, I don't think the fight comes to the CONUS, but it certainly reaches Hawaii, it can reach Alaska, it can reach Guam, it can reach Kadena, it can reach all those things. And so... How survivable is the B-52? You know, you're over China, you get hit with some flak. Can the B-2 make it back? You know, it's a flying wing. Very. Oh, dependent. okay. Um, yeah, so if, if you are, if you do, if you're struck, I mean, there's some questions, right? It, it sort of depends on what the damage is to it. Um, will it be as LO? No. Um, so you have you kind of a signature issue. Um, but might you be able to recover the aircraft? Yeah, I mean, it has four computers that fly it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it. It could be. I guess it sort of depends on how it gets hit. Um, unlikely. Yeah. Sorry. So as we uh, begin to sort of wrap up, kind of some closing questions. So first off, obviously you've had a long career as a pilot in the Air Force. What would you tell a cadet, a prospective cadet who's hoping to be a cadet, or anybody who really wants to fly in the Air Force, what is one piece of advice that you would give them? I would say all learning curves look different. So the rate in which you're going to learn something about flying and you're going to learn something about flying are going to be different. So you cannot look at somebody else and say, oh, my gosh, I haven't been, I haven't mastered a no-flap landing yet. Like, oh, uh, you just don't know, right? Some look very steep. Some are very shallow and then jump. Some kind of are steep and plateau. Like, they're all different. And so, again, I was a UPT instructor, and I used to tell students that all the time, like, you will eventually get it because you will. I'm telling you, the dumbest person you've ever met flies planes. Like, I'm just letting you know. You will eventually get it. Just you got to learn at the pace in which your brain allows you to learn. Um, and then I would say, you know, as we talked about earlier, it not everything is fun until you're good at it. So it's okay if you're like, this isn't that fun. I get it. I promise you it gets a lot fun, a lot more fun once you get better at it. So just stick it out. Keep going. You might not feel good, right? Some people get sick flying. Like, that's not abnormal. Stick it out. Eventually, you'll get over it. It'll get fun, and then the world opens up to you. In the Air Force, flying opens up doors that you cannot imagine. 
because operators are the sort of the nexus of things that happen in the Air Force. You get to see both what happens on the operation, but you also get to see how logistics works, how maintenance works, how, you know, intel, like that all feeds into one thing that really supports operational missions. So you got to like, you got to push through some of the not fun stuff to get to the, the more fun stuff. Thank you for that. And so we have just one more question. It's going to be a tradition here on the podcast. <laughs> okay. We're asking every single guest, okay. can you please pitch us your plane, the B-2, and why it is the best plane in the Air Force? Yeah. Nobody cares more about a plane movement than the B-2. It is the single most important thing. I'd say next to a nuclear submarine that everybody is watching. Um, the number of students that were China from China or Russia at University of Central Missouri when the B-2 moved there in the late 90s, early 2000s, triple 300 percent increase because of the b2 being there like it's just one of those planes that everybody cares about because it can do so much damage um, there are target sets that it can strike that still make people nervous and I, I would say that about strategic bombers just in general like that is where we're moving towards strategic bombers easily are the thing that's going to make the difference in the pacific fight because everybody else will get pushed out so B-2s and then subsequently B-21s, that's the thing that's going to be able to make that difference and hold at-risk targets and deter people from doing things. That's the thing that will do it. I think she sold it. <laughs> uh, any closing remarks? No, thank you both so much. I thought your questions were incredibly thoughtful, and um, obviously you guys really take this seriously. So thanks for letting me be on your podcast and be a part of this. Yeah, thanks again to Colonel Makros for uh, coming on for Episode 3 of the Flyover Podcast. Um, thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, all these episodes are available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. So really pick the platform you want to listen on. And um, we'll catch you guys in the next one.